Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, now part of Netrix, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage lockdown applications, Java browsers, and mitigate ransomware plus more. And of course, also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. ZDNet has reported that Broadcom CEO Hawk Tan will now be overseeing the company following the departure of former CEO Thomas Krauss the mastermind behind the $61 billion VMware acquisition. It has been indicated Krauss has not been replaced due to poor performance, but at the same time, the register suggests his removal is not all that surprising given the task at hand in onboarding VMware to merge with the Broadcom software group. Where things get very interesting is that people started talking about a possible merger of Citrix and VMware on Monday, And then quickly, Citrix released a press release announcing that Thomas Krauss, yes, the same Thomas Krauss who was just replaced at Broadcom, is joining a combined Citrix and TIBCO merger as chief executive officer, so CEO of that organization. Now, the Citrix-TIBCO merger is expected to be completed in the third quarter of 2022 if regulators don't hold it up, which will take Citrix private then. So you'll have... Broadcom with VMware merged under their new CEO, Hawk Tan, and Citrix with Tibco under the former Broadcom CEO. So does this all give credence to the idea of a merger or some sort of enhanced partnership between VMware and Citrix? There was certainly chatter of it before the Citrix press release. So I would guess someone with insider information was putting it out there. Now, this doesn't mean it's actually going to happen, but it would be kind of cool to have like the best parts of both Citrix DAS and VMware Horizon together. Now, which vendor does which part better than the other (laughs) is probably a matter of personal opinion and choice. Uh, I certainly have my opinion, but it would be cool to have kind of the best of both worlds together in the future. But that's all just hearsay and conjecture, as they say. Let's not get our hopes up. And really, it's just rumor that was going around on social media. So it could be complete BS. Windows Auto Patch has arrived. I covered Auto Patch on two previous episodes of the podcast. Once when it was first announced, and then another time when it went into preview. Windows Auto Patch automates updating of Windows 10, Windows 11, Microsoft Edge, and Microsoft 365 software. Essentially, Microsoft engineers use the Windows update for business client policies and deployment service tools on your behalf. The service creates testing rings and monitors rollouts, pausing and even rolling back changes where possible. Because the auto patch service has such a broad footprint and pushes updates around the clock, Microsoft is able to detect potential issues among an incredibly diverse array of hardware and software configurations. 
This means that an issue that may have an impact on your portfolio could be detected and resolved before ever reaching your estate. And as the service expands and grows, the ability to detect issues will get more robust. Microsoft say they invest resources into rigorous testing and validation of their releases, and they want to give customers confidence to act. They say they have a record of 99.6% app compatibility with their updates and an app assure team that has your back in case you should encounter an application compatibility issue that's at no additional cost for eligible customers. I haven't had to engage the app assure team yet. Um, be interested to hear from others who have and if it was a success. They say that in organizations where update deployment rings are already in place and the update process is robust, the appetite for this kind of automation may not be as strong. And in talking to customers, they are learning how to evolve the auto patch service to meet more use cases and deliver more value and are excited for some of the developments which will be announced in the upcoming month's blog. And that's an interesting point because when I covered the stories previously of AutoPatch, that was kind of my own opinion was, well, it was never really that hard to set up like the ADRs and to kind of oversee the patching itself. And it wasn't all that complicated to have like patching groups and uh, a ring set up yourself. It was more the fact when patches would go wrong. So in this announcement, they're specifically honing in on the fact that, you know, at scale, they'll be able to detect when there's like maybe issues with the patch on certain hardware and then protect you automatically from those. Of course, not everybody, because <laughs> in order to detect it is a problem with my hardware, someone has to feel the pain. But that's a benefit. And also, it sounds like the ability to roll back automatically is there as well. So it's pretty interesting. I'd love to try it out. Uh, and if you want to try it out and start enrolling devices, you need to find the Windows Auto Patch entry in your tenant administration blade of the Microsoft Endpoint Manager Admin Center, which personally I have not found. Um, then you select tenant enrollment, select the checkbox to agree to the terms and conditions and click agree, and then select enroll. Now they say in my case, where I don't see it, it's because my subscription is not valid for it. The announcement lists Windows E3 and E5 for Windows Auto Patch. Uh, Windows E3 and E5 works for Windows Update for Business Deployment Service, and also all commercial and EDU SKUs for Windows Update for Business. So specifically for Auto Patch, it's Windows E3 and E5. And I guess I'm a little confused because I have an E5 plus mobility. So maybe because it's not specifically Windows E3 and E5, it's not showing up. I'm not sure. I really need to kind of get that clarified. I'm terrible when it comes to licensing and figuring this stuff out. And I would guess it's not a coincidence that Microsoft also published a mechanics video this week on cloud-based update management in Microsoft Endpoint Manager with an explanation of how to use CloudAttach. And CloudAttach is a means for organizations using Configuration Manager to have even more flexibility in managing endpoints without having to choose between security, compliance, and supporting new work realities. So kind of hitting the cloud-based update management on multiple fronts here with multiple different solutions. And speaking of updates, happy Patch Tuesday week. This month, Microsoft have released 84 fixes and the breakdown of the Windows updates includes 
52 elevation or privilege vulnerabilities fixed, 4 security feature bypass vulnerabilities, 12 remote code execution vulnerabilities, 11 information disclosure vulnerabilities, and 5 denial of service vulnerabilities. Bleepitcomputer.com reports that this month's updates includes a patch for an actively exploited zero-day elevation or privileges vulnerability. This one is listed as CVE-2022-22047 and it's a Windows CSRSS elevation of privilege vulnerability. They say that an attacker who successfully exploited the vulnerability could gain system privileges. And it was discovered internally by the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center and Microsoft Security Response Center. I feel like the CSRSS service uh, had a vulnerability last month too, I think. But regardless, I saw that Kevin Beaumont, who's an excellent follow on Twitter for InfoSec-related information, had a really great thread where he went through each vulnerability in a concise manner, suggesting whether or not they were worrying, or, well, particularly worrying. It was reassuring, as most were quite complex for hackers to leverage, but his thread is so to the point and concise that I feel like it's a really great resource and you should check it out. I'm going to share a link to his thread with this episode, which is episode 238, and you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. Well, Microsoft blocking macros in Office is becoming a will-they-won't-they type of situation. About a week ago, it was announced that Microsoft canceled the update that would block macros, which was an action that InfoSec, at least, were really excited for. Uh, So the fact that they decided to walk that back was disappointing to many. But they say that following user feedback, they have rolled back this change temporarily while they make some additional changes to enhance usability. And they emphasize this is a temporary change. And they emphasize this is a temporary change and they are fully committed to making the default change for all users. Now, they haven't detailed the usability changes, and I'm guessing they realized that blocking the macros was likely to have a pretty significant impact on a lot of customers, even if it would be saving them from themselves. So last week, this is a story I cut from last week, (laughs) but I've decided to bring it back for this week. But last week, Microsoft released the latest build of the Windows 11 preview to the beta channel. But it has been split into two groups. One group gets a build with new features switched on and the other doesn't. And no one gets to choose which group they're in. And testers may lose previously released features. Seems like an interesting approach. It's kind of like the placebo test. It says one group of Windows 11 beta testers will get new features automatically in theirs and future builds thanks to what is referred to as a and quote enablement package end quote the other group without the enablement packages has new features off by default like i said so the specific term here for what they're doing is called an enablement package now for those annoyed by losing windows 11 features that just disappear because they're in the group that no longer gets them Microsoft recommends installing the enablement package to restore those lost features. They say they realize this isn't ideal and they are learning how to best adjust their rollouts going forward to minimize disruption in previewing experiences. Look, I know that's annoying, but 
there's probably some good reason behind it. Like I said, possibly that placebo effect, right? Maybe let's see if people complain about a change across all <laughs> uh, insider builds, even though only one got the change or something like that. I don't know. Maybe it's a psychological experiment. Or more practically, hey, they want to see if a change made impacts a smaller group before more people get it. It was reported this week that Gardner estimates worldwide sales in the global PC market for products taken by retailers and distributors are down about 12.6% year on year. And this means that the market for PC sales is falling at its fastest rate in nine years. The report suggests the decline that they saw in the first quarter of 2022 has accelerated in the second quarter, driven by the ongoing geopolitical instability caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, inflationary pressure on spending, and a steep downturn in demand for Chromebooks, which I think is pretty interesting. Apple was the only major top five vendor to report an expanding sales ledger, up 9.3% globally to 6.365 million. And this was driven by the popularity of the M1 chips. Now the M2 chip devices is out now for those who want to spend extra money and you know scale up to that. As for the others in the market, they report that global market leaders Lenovo were down 12.5% to 17.863 million units. HP was down 27.5% to 13.5 million. And Dell was down 5.2% to 13.298 million. Behind Apple was Acer with shipments of 5.09 million, down 18.7%. So pretty significant drops. Now, significant drops, but still massive amounts of units being sold. In terms of regions, some 4 million fewer PCs were shipped into the US channels during Q2, and the blame was mostly apportioned to the less and less loved Chromebook form factor. They suggest there is a 50% year-on-year decline in Chromebook shipments. The register suggests this is disappointing after a relative surge in demand during COVID for PC hardware in general or netbooks or Chromebooks or whatever. But I guess that was with people going remote, you know, needing a device, a mobile device to bring home and work on. But the article doesn't seem to mention the ongoing global chip shortage as a factor, which... I think it is still a factor, at least in Q1. Like I'd ordered some hardware at the end of last year and it took uh, months to arrive due to supply chain issues and also just getting the components, uh, the chips. I know Intel have been making waves in order to ramp up production again, but I can't imagine it's having this quick of an effect to turn things around from where they were. And then also the fact that, like they say, a lot of there was a surge of people buying new laptops, PCs, or whatever uh, when COVID struck. So they're not going to like replace them after just a year or two, right? Particularly if they're personal computers that they brought home to do their work from, not supplied by their employer, which that was the case for some people. So they're probably going to hold on to those for five, six years at least. So I don't know. There's probably some factors not taken into consideration in this report and also 
in the findings from Gardner, I feel. And while we're on the topic of the commercial business, I saw an interesting story in the video game world that made me think. This was about game company Ubisoft potentially removing an Assassin's Creed game from customers, libraries, and Steam. With at least one upset gamer suggesting there is a need to instead buy physical games rather than using this subscription type of service. It is interesting, isn't it? It gave me pause for thought about enterprise software and so much moving to the cloud. Could a vendor potentially turn around and announce they are shutting down next week? Sorry, you won't be able to use this product anymore. Goodbye and to hell with how that affects your business. I'm sure it could happen, but then I also remembered over 10 years ago, I worked for a large company who had a contractual disagreement with a large software company. The software company ripped up the contract and charged them full retail price per seat to keep using their products, which they had to do. They couldn't just shut it off and everything would be fine. And they even forced them to stop using some products completely that were not available to retail customers. I think certainly for games, good argument to be made for buying physical to avoid this. Enterprise software, eh. I think we've been praying at the altar of janky license agreements for decades. So yeah, the cloud is a quicker way for them to maybe disable it and remove things, but we're way down the garden path on this already of just horribly one-sided license agreements. ZDNet reported on an interesting Microsoft survey and study on employee satisfaction. Now, it's a pretty long study and report, and in the interest of saving time, I'm going to try and get through some quick hit stories. Uh, my impression of reading it was smaller teams, shorter weeks, and less meetings leads to greater satisfaction. And I think every employer would have caught on to this sooner if they just listened to their employees. You know, if we have like one-on-one -on -one meetings with our managers and we give them this feedback, I'm sure they bring it up the chain, but if those people up the chain don't listen, then these changes don't get made. Also in the past, it's been an employer's market, so they weren't forced to make changes to keep employees. Well, now they are. So maybe now is the time for employees to use this leverage to get what they want. And speaking of that, there was also a pretty interesting article on the fact that 95% of employees say that IT issues decrease workplace productivity and morale, which a lot of people pointed out, well, that's not surprising because if you have IT issues and you're not able to work, then that is going to affect your productivity. But also, I mean, an important factor is Productive workers tend to be happy workers. If there's obstacles, you get frustrated, you have to make it up later, and that does not make people happy. And it made me think of a blog post I did several months ago about the digital employee experience and how critical it can be for what is now an employee's market, like I said, and just driving productivity and happiness amongst employees and keeping them within your company. And I'll share my article as well as these reports with this episode. Another quick hit story here, Microsoft Teams will provide meeting organizers the option to set the together mode by default for their meetings to give them a more immersive experience. There will also be a feature that allows organizers to assign seats for attendees in together mode. And this is expected to arrive in September, according to neowin.net. 
Lily Tao and Kenton Varda on Twitter shared a really interesting form entry and discussion around SanDisk SSD models failing at 40,000 hours exactly. I believe I covered a similar story a couple of years ago on the podcast too. But in the form post, the poster had a scenario where all the hardware that was replaced in succession, which typically you do, the hardware refresh might occur at the same time. Well, with the new SSDs all being put in around the same time, each one started to fail around the same time too, resulting in each device getting bricked. As Kenton stated, in this very real doomsday scenario, the primary and backup servers each had RAID 1, but all failed at the same time. And that can happen if they all hit 40,000 hours around the same time. And when setting up a RAID 1 mirror, he suggests you should always try to pair two SSDs from entirely different chipset makers. And don't assume if you have some SanDisk and say some Samsung SSDs that you're fine because it reads like this is a Y2K style ticking time bomb of a bug that's in several chipsets. So if multiple vendors are using the same chipset, using various different vendors SSDs is not going to help you. You need to scrutinize what you're using. Scary. And in some lighter news, this week I saw Helga Klein shared a pretty funny post from the legendary Don Ho, who's the creator of Notepad++. He shared an email he received from a disgruntled user of Notepad++ who is complaining, saying, oh, Notepad++ is okay, but honestly, I'm sick of it. And he was just going through on a rant. Well, Don responded and said, hi, Tom. I'm feeling sorry regarding your horrible user experience during, during all these years. You're right to feel angry about all the ridiculous settings. Notepad++ should be understandable by everyone, including the most obtuse people. As a result, please send me all your receipts of purchasing Notepad++ and I will process your refund. Best regards, Don. And in the blog post, Don even shared a template for a Notepad++ refund request form. <laughs> And if you don't use Notepad++ and you're wondering why this is funny, it's free. You don't pay for it. It reminds me of that scene in that movie Snatch where the guy gives betting tips to some lads and the bet doesn't come off and one of them complains and he grabs him and tells him, you know, when I give a dog a bone, I don't wait for him to tell me how it tastes. People are just so damn entitled. And also Notepad++ is awesome. And some of the settings in there and some of the extensions, like being able to compare two text files together, very, very valuable. So thanks, Don, for Notepad++. I really enjoy it. And now, a weekly webinar. ControlUp will be holding their troubleshooting showdown round two on July 21st at 2 p.m. EDT time, which is 11 a.m. Pacific Daylight time, which I believe is 7 p.m. Irish summertime, British summertime, and 8 p.m. for Central Europe. I know it's kind of late for us in Europe, but I strongly recommend attending this one because the first round was awesome. It's a really unique event. Uh, they're going to pit Trenton Ty, Guy Leach, Tom Fenton, and Eugenia Cipolletti against each other, and they'll be using different types of tools, taking on various different troubleshooting challenges. And then those who complete each task the quickest are the winners. 
And because Guy Leach is there and involved, expect a lot of one-liners. Personally, I enjoy the one-liners that don't land so well and make you cringe more than the ones that actually do land. I'll share a link for registration. Be sure that you check it out. Like I said, even if it's in the evening, if you're exercising or whatever, tune in because it's a lot of fun. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. The awesome Lee Jeffries shared that if you have the latest AVD agent on your host pool VMs and they become unavailable, check the event log for remote desktop services. There is a new check which seems to ping domain controllers to judge if they are available. And if they are not, the server is marked as unavailable. D Grammatical on Twitter shared some really cool looking metrics that you could pull from Apple's Safari browser that shows power consumption per website. So I think that's really, really interesting, particularly when companies are becoming much more sustainability driven. Nina Desnica shared for monitoring and troubleshooting, you can now collect diagnostics with additional details about Windows expedited updates if you're using Microsoft Endpoint Manager or Intune. And she provided the registry key location and also the directory to check out. And I'll share a link to that if, you, if you're interested. Felipe Benito posted a blog doing a comparison of Bicep and Azure and Terraform in terms of automation. So if you're into both or just one, then check out the blog to learn about the other and just see how they size up to each other. Helga Klein, again, shared an interesting article by an unknown author, as I don't see an about on the website, but in the post, the author goes through the run registry key and the fact that not everything in the run key gets executed, which is news to me. Uh, The article also goes through the nature of the values and another location for keys approved for run specifically. Importantly, the author suggests this could be used by threat actors and provides a link to an example. Very, very interesting because, yeah, I assume if it's in a run key, then it's getting executed, but apparently not. My buddy Tom Fenton posted an article where he goes down a rabbit hole of troubleshooting what was causing system sluggishness and preventing upgrades to Windows 11 because of slow CPU speed. And he says that he found one trick that increased his system's performance by 400%. So I'm not going to give it away. This is obviously community-driven content. I don't want to take away views or clicks, but I'll share the article if you want to check it out for yourself. And finally, Peter Vandervoud posted his blog on easily managing universal print printers on Windows 11 devices. And if, like me, you've been doing a lot of work on Windows 365 lately, I saw that Universal Print is supported for that. So if you're not using Universal Print yet and you're using Windows 365, this article could be of interest to you because there's going to be some overlap in the future. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening.